Hello and welcome to the new China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. So for today's episode of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, uh, we are very fortunate to be joined by Elizabeth Braw. Elizabeth is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges, such as hybrid and gray zone threats. Prior to joining AEI, Elizabeth was a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies, more commonly known as RUSI, in London, where she founded its Modern Deterrence Project. Her most recent book, Defender's Dilemma, explores ways of identifying and deterring grey zone aggression in liberal democracies. She has also written articles on this topic for the Financial Times and Politico in recent times. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been looking forward to having you on for a while now, actually, and let's jump right into it. What do you mean by grey zone aggression? Well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. Grey zone aggression is aggression that's uh, conducted or sponsored by hostile states or by states um, in the grey zone between war and peace. So below the threshold of, of armed violence uh, conducted by, by armed forces. And it used to be that, um, that this was mostly disinformation campaigns and cyber attacks, but uh, I think it's becoming painfully obvious to everybody that it can be uh, many other things. In fact, it can be whatever the other side, the, the aggressor side, things up. Right. That's a, a lovely, succinct um, introduction to, to grey zone threats. And you, you've mentioned that the kind of non-military nature of these aggressions. Could you perhaps elaborate a bit more of what they consist of and perhaps which institutions or actors are uh, grey zone activities often targeted at? So if you are the, the hostile state or the, the aggressor state, you can use any tool at your disposal. And, and really the only limitation uh, that you have is your imagination. So it can, for example, be uh, migrants. We saw that at the, uh, the border between uh, Belarus and on one hand and Poland, Latvia and Lithuania on the other hand, uh, beginning uh, late last year. What Belarus did was, uh, as I think is known to everybody listening to this podcast, it brought uh, migrants from the Middle East to Belarus and uh, transported them to the border, uh, incentivized them to cross the border. Clearly, they wanted to cross the border anyway because they wanted to get to Europe. Uh, but um, what do you do as, as, as the EU, as, as Poland, as, as any kind of... What do you do about that? Because it's, it's clearly not... Uh, uh, military aggression, but it's clearly not nothing either. It's lots of people trying to cross your borders who are not allowed to cross your borders. So in that way, um, Belarus weaponized migrants, and it wasn't clear what the response would be, which was exactly, of course, what Belarus uh, had in mind. It wanted to go to destabilization uh, in those countries. Um, so that's one example. Another example is um, corporate coercion or um, punishing Western companies as proxies for the home government. And we saw a good example of that uh, last year. So in late 2020, uh, Sweden, uh, Sweden's agency in charge of telecommunications decided not to use Huawei in 5G. And uh, the Chinese ambassador and other Chinese officials immediately said, well, now Ericsson is going to suffer the consequences. And Ericsson is, as, as I think 
all your listeners know, uh, Huawei's main competitor um, in the 5G market, and it's also considered to have a higher quality. And it's, it's a global company that sells a lot outside Sweden, just happens to be based in Sweden, uh, sells uh, all over the world. And China is a major market. In fact, Ericsson uh, at that point uh, had about 10% of its revenues in China and about 1% in Sweden. So China was a, a major market. And don't you think in, um, in the first half of 2021, uh, Ericsson lost major uh, sales in China and also lost uh, lost lots of sales in China uh, and also lost a major contract uh, with China Mobile or rather its its uh, share went down uh, from 11% in the previous round to 2% in that new round whereas uh, Nokia from Finland uh, increased its share Finland had said nothing about Huawei and 5G so the message was clear uh, if you if you criticize China, if you do something we don't like, we will punish your companies. And just one more point uh, there on, on the corporate question side, because I think it's so important both because our companies operate globally. Uh, another example, uh, just from a few weeks ago, when um, Lithuania uh, allowed or invited Taiwan to open a representative office bearing the name of Taiwan in Vilnius, uh, China said, oh, there will be consequences. And there were consequences, but again, on the corporate question side, all of a sudden, imports uh, involving Lithuanian parts were suspended. So they'd be just languishing at uh, in Chinese ports. And these parts uh, were, it wasn't just Lithuanian products, it was all sorts of European products containing, um, containing Lithuanian parts. And there's not very much, in fact, there's nothing those companies can do about it. Right, and I think listeners will be familiar with the um, Lithuania example that you cited um, when Lithuania opened a, a Taiwanese representative office and China responded with economic coercion um, and kind of retaliatory sanctions on Lithuanian companies and, and throughout their supply chain. But your definition of, of grey zone aggression and taxonomy is is really useful in that they move cautiously to, towards achieving goals rather than seeking results immediately um, and grey zone activities tend to remain below the the key escalatory thresholds in order to uh, avoid wars exactly and 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 also for the for the targeted side it's uh it's a little bit like geopolitical gaslighting you don't know whether it, whether what you're seeing is is aggression or whether it's just part of the hustle and bustle of the globalized economy so if we look at for example uh, China's construction of those artificial islands in the South China Sea. It was another example of, of razor and aggression. It wasn't it didn't involve any armed forces, uh, and it, it just involved uh, incremental uh, <laughs> construction, right? And so, at any given point, uh, at every given point, uh, the countries uh, affected and the United States and, and, and other international countries said, "Well, you know, this is not good, but it's it's not it's not a major." It's not a major escalation. It's not a major problem. So let's just plead with them to stop here. Of course, China didn't plead. They didn't stop. And and now we have those islands. If there had been sort of full-blown military uh, attack, then it would have been clear, oh, somebody is violating uh, the territorial waters of of such and such country. But with this, if you put a little bit of hardware uh, in in the ocean, how, how does a targeted country respond? 
Yeah, I fully agree. When those aggressions are t- t- taking place in that grey zone, it's very difficult um, for the victims to to know how to muster a kind of clean, cohesive response to them. Okay, let's let's turn to China now. And, and how does Beijing uh, approach grey zone activities? And does its approach differ to liberal democracies or, or even other authoritarian states like Russia? Um, and, and I'm talking everything from kind of cyber activities to wolf warrior diplomacy um, to uh, aggression towards Taiwan, you know, um, flying jets over its air defense zone. So, yeah, unpack that question how you would like. Yeah, it's an excellent question because uh, the countries that again engaged in grey zone aggression have different uh, different types of focus. So Russia has conducted a lot of, of um and disinformation and cyber attacks. Uh, Iran conducts a lot of cyber attacks. Uh, North Korea conducts a lot of cyber attacks too. Uh, but China focuses mostly on exploiting globalization. And why does it exploit globalization? It's because it, uh, the Chinese government wants to tur- government wants to turbocharge the Chinese economy to become the world's strongest economy, this, the, the world's leading high tech manufacturer, and it will do so. Ethics, or it is doing so at the expense of the West. And so it may not look like aggression, may, may just look like, oh, companies are being acquired, um, uh, scientists come to, to work here, just like scientists from other countries come to work here in, in cutting edge research areas. Um, you know, VCs, so venture capital firms are investing in our best startups. And ordinarily, in, in, in a sort of normal uh, globalized world, if there ever was such a thing, that would be fine, right? But if a country does that on an industrial scale, as it were, uh, and doesn't give other countries the same uh, chance of accessing its assets, then it becomes greater aggression because it's doing so to exploit the other side uh, to its own benefit. So you weaken the other side and you, you uh, strengthen your own country. And we should remember also that that the West is not. Uh, completely innocent when it comes to gray zone aggression. For, for decades, we have, for example, been involved in, in um, spreading information to countries we consider unfree uh, or undemocratic. Countries are clearly undemocratic. Uh, we did it during the Cold War with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty uh, being broadcasted you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And we have done it uh, in various other ways since. Of course, we would argue, we the West would argue that we are doing a good deed for the development of the world, but we have to consider that that the side, uh, the, the, the other side will, will think differently and will say, well, you're interfering in our countries. It doesn't mean that we should stop doing it. It just means that we should think about how our actions are perceived, because in response, such countries can then engage in gray zone aggression back. And let's discuss one arm of China's grey zone activities, if you want to characterize it as such. Um, and that's the Digital Silk Road, uh, which I know that uh, you've written and talked about extensively in the past. And for those who don't know, the, the Digital Silk Road has become the chief face of the BRI. And it is the idea of Chinese um, companies going out to Belt and Road countries and, and um, providing digital infrastructure solutions. And, and what I wanted to, to ask is, how do you see China's digital Silk Road strategy? Uh, and are the countries that are opening their, their arms to, to Chinese tech giants for, for digital infrastructure inheriting kind of risk of data exfiltration back to China? 
Um, or is the, the tech being used by non-democratic countries to sort of undermine individual liberties? Why would you characterize what China is doing perhaps as gray zone aggression? If you think about the, the choices that are available to any country today, uh, seeking to build out its infrastructure, and, and let's be realistic, every country needs to build out its uh, digital infrastructure, otherwise you will not be part of the globalized economy. So you have to do it. And, and if you're a wealthy country like the UK, you can say, okay, I, I think uh, Huawei poses a risk, I'll go with a different, uh, different provider, uh, such as Ericsson and Nokia. Uh, but if you're a, a less wealthy country, you may say, well, I will consider my choice only based on cost. And Huawei is, is usually cheaper because it, uh, well, first of all, because it's uh, subsidized or has received enormous uh, funding from the Chinese government. Uh, and also maybe because the, the, the kit is not uh, as top-notch as, as that of Ericsson, even though the gap is closing. So you will say, okay, I... Maybe I don't particularly like China, but this is the cheapest product that uh, is not just about 5G, but about lots of other areas, uh, including areas with, with a lot of AI. And so this is what I'm concerned about. You know, everywhere AI is used uh, and, and uh, where data is collected, that the more data you collect, the more the, the better the technology becomes, right? So less wealthy countries, or I should say developing countries, emerging economies, I fear risk becoming the sort of um, lab for, for Chinese technology companies where they sort of test out new uh, AI technology. And there are lots and lots of people using it and they don't have a choice in whether they, they have sort of part this, they are guinea pigs and this Chinese AI, whereas we in the West would be able to say, well, we're just going to use it. Yeah, I think that idea of um, countries along the digital roads being a sort of testing bed is really important uh, with the idea of, of Chinese standards for, for these products being sort of locked in because of all the benefits of, of interoperability in, in this globalized economy that you, that you spoke of, which is now obviously being being driven by tech solutions. Um, but but these, you know, the governments of these recipient countries aren't stupid, for lack of a better phrase, they, they, they will be constantly weighing up the kind of economic benefits versus the, the national security risk that some of these Chinese tech products might might carry with them. So what I'm getting at really here, Elizabeth, is, is how can we, the West, if you like, offer solutions in tech if we can't compete on scale or even necessarily, necessarily quality with China? Well, nobody wants to be a guinea pig, right? And just because you lead a developing country or an emerging economy, doesn't mean that you want to sort of put your citizens at the disposal of, of, of Chinese companies for them to be guinea pigs for AI. So I think we can make the case that, that you know, we all want uh, uh, a world where there is uh, as little unnecessary surveillance uh, as possible and, and where citizens have, where they are in charge of their own data to the greatest extent possible. And, and otherwise, we, I think this is the case I would make to, to leaders of, of emerging economies. Otherwise, it will become sort of a, um, a two-tier world where Western citizens can have relative, um, relative power over their data, whereas citizens of poorer countries are just, they're being used for constant exp AI experimentation and they don't own their data. And if I were the leader of a, an emerging economy, I would say, well, 
<laughs> I don't want my people to be my citizens to be in that second category. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And to bring it back to the UK or European national security context, how well equipped do you think we as, as Western liberal democracies are to, to deal with grey zone aggressions? And um, how, how do you think we should, what steps do you think we could take to, to sort of bolster our, our defence? And have you seen any successful examples of, of deterrent schemes by liberal democracies? I think we are we are better set up than we were two years ago. Um, when COVID hit, people I think um, had a bit, bit of a wake up call and they realized that our societies can be brought to their knees by acts uh, other than war. Uh, before that, uh, I can speak from my own experience. People had been sort of treating my work like you know it's nice to have it's good it's good that you're trying to to develop strategies for for how to. Uh, how to uh, deter gray zone aggression, but there are many other uh, issues that are far, far more urgent. Then people realized when COVID hit that actually uh, society can crumble pretty quickly, even if, if no military violence is involved. My concern is that as citizens, we are we're often so careless. And um, so if you just look at the ease with which people or the, the, the carelessness with which people uh, hand over all sorts of data on their apps to the provider. Um, they don't even try to opt out. And, and so, for example, I, I did a recent paper uh, on ride sharing. So Didi, which is a Chinese company that is trying to enter Europe, uh, faces of, through no fault of its own, having to hand over its data to the Chinese government. Uh, and yet, uh, people seem totally unconcerned about the fact that their data could end up with the Chinese government. Same thing, even more so with TikTok. People share, you know, any waking thought. In fact, any waking moment, movement on TikTok, uh, as if there is no tomorrow. But what does it mean if the Chinese government, uh, as it will, uh, gets access to all this data? What does it do with with that data? What does it mean? For China's understanding of, of uh, the, the way we live our life uh, lives here in the West, and also, so that's something I'm concerned about. And also, that sort of carelessness, I think, is coming through now in in the war in Ukraine, uh, or Ukraine, depending on how, how one wants to pronounce it. Um, there is uh, enormous amounts of information. Um, people should be uh, familiar. In fact, they are familiar with the concept of disinformation and misinformation because that's been going on for, for so many years now. And yet they share information on so social media and elsewhere as if there is no tomorrow without making the slightest attempt of verifying it. And um, it could be that they, they, they think they're doing a good deed, but we all have a role to play in trying to keep the information environment, environment as clean as possible in trying to keep our countries as safe as possible. And the private sector has a role to play in, for example, uh, considering its, its exposure to the Chinese market, uh, which makes them uh, vulnerable to Chinese coercion. So there are all these things that we as citizens could do, that companies can do, and of course, the governments can do. There's a lot in there that I want to very quickly um, unpack before we um, round off our, our discussion today. Um, I think Principally, you know, you said in, I think, in a, pre a preview of your book, you said that Western governments cannot simply impose grey zone 
um, deterrence. Instead, is in the interest of all members of society to play a role in grey zone defence and deterrence um, with the idea that everyone stands to benefit. Um, and I think this is what you were just alluding to, that you know, citizens have to play a role um, in deterrence too. And I was wondering, how do you think we can better involve different groups across society um, and promote awareness of, of grey zone threats? Yeah, so uh, it's worth remembering that the deterrence has two parts. So there's deterrence by punishment, which is when, when governments say to another government, if you do this, we will do this. And hopefully the, the, the prospective aggressor will then conclude that it's not worth engaging in the aggression because the punishment will be so severe. Then there is the, the there is um, there is deterrence by resilience, which is where you and I and, and the rest of civil society uh, can play a role, and and that's where we can do uh, an enormous amount because in fact for so many years, for these thirty years, if you could one could argue even since the end of, of World War Two, uh, the civil society hasn't really been involved in in keeping. Uh, the country safe. There was involvement in, in a number of countries, for example, Sweden, Finland, and so forth, but not so much uh, in the UK. And especially for the past 30 years uh, in the UK, we have been able to live our lives uh, assuming that uh, in, in the belief that uh, we don't really need to do anything for, for the greater good. We can just pursue our own happiness and pay our taxes and, and, and then everything will be fine. Well, it won't. So I think where things need to start and something I would love to see happen, uh, um, I'm not sure how soon it could happen, but what, what if there were to be information literacy courses for, for everyone and it wouldn't have to be mandatory, but on the voluntary basis, and uh, it could, they could be offered by public libraries and you could attend and, and you'd get a, you'd pass a test and get a certificate, which would um, certify that, that you have this skill in, in information literacy. I think it would, well, I would think people would want that skill for themselves anyway, but it could also be a useful uh, thing to have on, on job applications, right? I mean, which employer wants to hire somebody who can't tell the truth from, or falsehoods from, from, from facts? And then another aspect I think is really important is uh, government engagement with, with business leaders. So business leaders are painfully aware of what's happening, but it's, it's not in their power to, to do anything about it. They just know that, that they are being targeted by cyber attacks. They know that they can be targeted by, by uh, coercion anytime, but it's not in their power to, to, to uh, do anything about it. So I think if governments were able to, to keep uh, business leaders to have a, a dialogue with business leaders to tell them. So this is what's likely uh, to come to come your way. This is how how certain governments, uh, hostile or, or unfriendly governments, are certain are, are likely to, to act. Then at least those companies would would be able to pre prepare accordingly, and they may also have insights from the front lines, as it were, because they are global and they they are so exposed. They may have interesting insights that the government government would benefit from from. Uh, knowing and understanding, so I, I I think there is enormous potential there, and it wouldn't even it wouldn't even cost a lot of money. It would cost virtually no money. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And education in in terms of these non military threats is probably something that that needs to be looked at in greater depth by policymakers. And I just want to finish on uh, Elizabeth this government private sector nexus that's been a um, underlying theme to a, a lot of what you've talked about today. 
and you've discussed Beijing's propensity to use economic coercion to achieve political aims. Um, and you've labelled, I think, China as a risky bet due to things like the reputational risks of exposure of links to, to Xinjiang for companies. But these multinational companies, you know, keep going back there because of the vast Chinese market and integrated supply chain networks and infrastructure that other developing countries or, you know, other countries in general just simply can't compete with. And how do you see companies navigating this reputational risk moving forward? I think we've seen so far companies manage to kind of separate their ESG risk uh, from their kind of um, China operations. How can governments better work alongside the private sector to kind of reduce the impact or ill effects from taking a, a, a more firm line on this kind of activity? Yeah, so I think what will happen is that no company will say, oh, there is a risk of Chinese coercion. And by the way, we don't agree with China's, uh, with Beijing's actions uh, in Xinjiang province. So we're going to leave China. Uh, CEOs would be fired by their boards if they did that, because China is such an important, the Chinese market is such an important part of their revenues and also uh, of, uh, of their production supply chain. I think what would happen is that they will quietly and gradually reduce their Chinese exposure or their reliance on the Chinese market. They will move more production uh, to, to neighboring countries. And it is a bit complicated because you can have a, a lot of production in China, whereas other countries are, uh, have, are not as well set up. And of, of course, they are smaller as well. So it, it would be, uh, it's, it's not as straightforward as just taking a few factories and putting them in another country. Uh, but nevertheless, I think companies will start doing that. And we have seen it already in the apparel and footwear sector, where uh, as China became a bit more expensive for production, companies moved their production to, to places like Cambodia and Vietnam. I think that will continue uh, uh, in, in other sectors as well, or grow in other sectors as well. And also uh, a reduced uh, reliance on China as a, as a, uh, for sales. Um, the, the thing is that CEOs, um, their tenure is on average five years and they report in quarterly reports. So they are measured on a quarterly basis. And this sort of process that needs to happen is you know, we go lo for longer than five years. So it's easy for them to say, well, you know, the next CEO will have to take care of that. I'll just deliver my quarterly reports until, until uh, I finish uh, my tenure here at, at such and such company. But um, what I think will happen uh, at the same time, which will accelerate this process of of uh, reducing, of companies reducing their exposure to or, or reliance on China is Generation X, which uh, feels very strongly about values, uh, companies' values. And they will continue pushing companies on where they do business, where they have their production. And if you're hit by a, sort of a, a consumer act, uh, activist uh, campaign uh, regarding where, where your goods are manufactured or which markets you depend on, you would have, you would suffer as a company great reputational damage. And I think that's something that CEOs uh, will increasingly take into account because uh, reputational damage lasts um, for years. Yeah, I think you're right in that ESG concerns is such, is such a big driver for, uh, you know, the younger generation, but companies operating in China still seem to be sort of able to, to silo their China operations 
um, at the moment. Although I do think what with China's sort of self-sufficiency in some industries and um, geopolitical shocks like, you know, playing out at the moment um, with, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I, I think we're seeing companies sort of coming to terms with the fact that China maybe isn't quite the safe bet that they um, perhaps thought it, it once was. If I can, if we can just interrupt, the, the, the sort of stain that is uh, attached to companies' reputation if they if they are seen as being beholden to China is is it, it is on um, on people's minds even long after that that stain was was attached in the first place. So if you look at for example uh, Volkswagen, which uh, last year I think it was that the CEO CEO was was interviewed on on the BBC about forced labor and its plants in in, in Xinjiang, and he said, well. Now, how could I possibly know whether there's forced labor? Something like that. I think the moment people hear Volkswagen today, many will think of forced labor. And he could have, if he had said, that's definitely something I'm going to look into because we don't endorse forced labor. We want nothing to do with it in our supply chain. Uh, Volkswagen would look a lot better now. Also, the, uh, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, uh, which backed down uh, or which uh, punished one of its general managers when he just retweeted uh, an image uh, saying free Hong Kong, really shameful. And as a result, uh, that reputational stain uh, is still uh, attached to, to, to the MBA's reputation. Uh, same thing with Nike, uh, when uh, it was punished by China last year, a sort of a consumer boycott that, that was really a boycott against, uh, or a, a signal to the US and the EU and the UK uh, when they imposed sanctions on, on Chinese officials that the signal was real punish your companies, then the CEO of Nike said, well, we are a company of China and for China. And that has also damaged Nike's reputation. You know, it, 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 it's uh, sounding like kowtowing, it was kowtowing, and as a result, Nike doesn't look very good. Right. And um, I, I think we've seen with the Peng Shui case, the, the Chinese tennis player who disappeared a, a change in course, perhaps um, with the WTO, WTA, sorry, being firm in, in pulling its, its operations from China. Well, Elizabeth, you've given me and I'm sure all of the listeners plenty to, to ponder from this conversation. Um, just to finish with, where can, where can we direct listeners to, to find you and, and follow what you're up to? They can either find me on AI's website, and luckily, I'm the only person in the name in the world with this name. So, uh, if if they Google me, they'll find me very easily on AI's website, and indeed on the website of Foreign Policy, where I write about the clash uh, between uh, geopolitics and globalization. And uh, I look forward to, to any feedback, and let's let's keep fighting the good fight. Excellent. Well, Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for giving up your time today to join us on the Talks on China podcast. Thank you.